Let's pray together. Oh, great God, we come, and we come seeking you this morning. We come seeking your face, and whether that be in bright days or in dark days, we come seeking you. You are the one who has made us, and we are yours. And so we come seeking you, not seeking more of our own life, our own self, of our own glory, our own reputations, our praise, but we come to praise and lift up your great name. You are faithful, and you are good, and how faithful you have been, and how faithful you are, and how good you have been to all of us. Every day, what mercies we see what mercies we drink of with every breath of every day of every moment and we come before you this morning recognizing that and we pray lord earnestly lord we recognize even as we come this lord's day to come and worship you and hear your word preached we come recognizing christ alone is our savior and even so, as we come this morning, we recognize we are sinners. And so we pray that you would give us grace right now and grant us sincere hearts in the seeking of your great name in your face. May you show us any grievous thing in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that we need to repent of. May you help show us any sin in us that we need to turn away from. Help us, O oh Lord, to seek you in truth. How easy it is to set forth a good foot or a, put on a mask or to pretend or act or any of these things. And we don't pray for more of that this morning. We pray for sincerity of heart and of life. We plead for that, that we may be more like Christ in the midst of all of our imperfections, that we may be found faithful in our day. May we be found faithful, we pray, and we ask in our families. May we be found faithful with our children, and may the children hear be found faithful. May you help us be found faithful in our work as we serve you without fail or without end as we go here and there and everywhere. May we be found faithful. May we be found faithful here as we gather this morning, as we serve, as we minister, as we teach, as I preach, as we hear and come under your word. May we be found faithful, O Lord. And as we come to your word right now, may you help us to be found faithful, that you would help us to hear faithfully, listen faithfully, and receive your word, and go and live it out, and be found faithful. 
not for us and for our glory, but for your glory and for the exaltation of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We'll be continuing our study walking through the book of Esther with Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now, we are only a short way into this book, and already, perhaps, you found it is a bit different than what you were expecting or maybe even how it's been presented to you. You know, it's not this kind of nice, cozy story of a king and a woman who, against all odds, fall in love, and they live happily ever after, you know. That's not the story of Esther. That may be the way you've understood this story. But this is not that story. This story is different and it's about real things and it even has a good deal of grittiness to it. So it's a story about real life. It's a story about real problems and it's a story as we have seen and as we will see even more as we walk through Esther. It is a story about real wickedness. Yet interwoven into all of that is God and how he is powerfully and mysteriously working out all of those things and all things according to his wise purposes and not in some kind of like fairy tale, like made up story, fictional world, but he is doing that even now because this is his world. And so God, with his word, is dealing with the real world. And in the world we find in this chapter, as we'll see, is indeed a broken one and a needy one. Mordecai, Esther, and all. So let's read here then, beginning with Esther chapter 2. Verse 1. May God bless the reading of his true word. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead, or let the woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, 
who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. She had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so when the king's orders, order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, and kings, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Or Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted, granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Amen. So this chapter, it takes us a bit forward in time since we last read in Esther. So at this point, we are now some three to four years moved ahead from when King Ahasuerus' edict was given, where he banished Vashti. So you'll remember, as we began the book of Esther, how it all began. So he began it with all these great feasts. And what were they about? His glory, right? To show his pomp, his power, and his glory. So we saw that in chapter 1. 
verse 4. And so they were declaring his greatness. And what a time they had with those feasts, right? I mean, they were having a merry time. And yet, very quickly, came a twist, didn't it? (laughs) Everyone is listening to King Ahasuerus, all bowing to the word immediately as he gives it. And then the merry, inebriated king, he calls for the queen, and she tells him, no. (laughs) So at his word who everyone else is listening to, she did not come. So he is furious. (laughs) So in anger, he gave an edict to remove her as queen. Banish Queen Vashti. Now for us, the story jumps right ahead. However, Some time between then and now, so three to four years in between that time, the mighty Ahasuerus, he went off to Greece to fight this massive battle. And he lost very, very badly. And so here he is, chapter 2, verse 1. So after all of that, we find what we see here. And we find the king's regret. The king's regret. So it says there in verse 1, After these things, with the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And so the implication there being that he had regretted what he did. (laughs) You know, he made this massive, angry kind of action, and now he's not so happy that he did that. Or maybe better from his perspective, if you just even read the words there, what had been decreed against her, what had been done. And so it seems here that he thinks, still, that he didn't necessarily do anything wrong at all. (laughs) You know, this just happened. I mean, they did that. That was not me. This decree went out, and now I'm unhappy that this happened. And so he's sad. However, it was most certainly too late. One thing about his decree is it was unrepealable. Chapter 1, verse 19. What's done was done. No going back now, King Ahasuerus. Good job, you know. And so we see plainly here, for ourselves, the great danger of hastiness, right? And simply just kind of giving in to our own whims at the moment. However you may just be feeling at that time. I mean, how dangerous it is for us when our emotions are highest to just react, You know, we would do well to remember the words from James, right? What does he say there in James 1? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. May we learn that lesson. Well, the king certainly does does not and has not, and as we'll see, really does not learn that lesson at all. And so the king here is full of his regrets. And at this moment then, here come his counselors, perhaps seeing him all downtrodden, and they come to give him some more of their wise counsel. And we've seen how wise that is. Not wise at all. And so they know their king. They know King Hazarus. And they know that he's a, he's a king who loves what he loves. You know what I mean? He has certain pleasures and certain things, certain lusts that he engages in. And that's, it, it's no exaggeration to say that what we have next here is a great search to please the king. And I mean that in the worst way. The king is downcast, and so they're saying to themselves, you know what we can do? Let's go and make, ha- you know, make the king happy again. Let's go throughout the kingdom and find a beautiful young virgin to replace Vashti. With the very clear emphasis being, you know, find someone who's beautiful who will satisfy the king's lust. In other words, just to put it very plainly, to satisfy the king sexually. That's what all of this is about. Is he's not happy? We know what has made him happy in the past. Let's go do that. So we no doubt see that the king is a big mess, right? He's a mess of a man. Now, as big of a mess as he is, and as big of a mess as he has already made, this also is a reflection of us and of our own hearts. And really of much of what we see really all around us right now. Is it not? People simply following their passions, following their feelings, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Is that not the same thing that we see King Ahasuerus doing here? And it is certainly what we are facing, you are facing in your own heart every single day. Are we just going around trying to, you know, fulfill and meet our own pleasures, our own desires, our own aims? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. Are we simply just doing what's right in our own eyes? This is, I like this doctrine, so I'm going to go with that one. I don't like this one as much, so forget that. I I like this Bible passage, but I don't like this one. I'll go with what I like. It's all around us. And we need to be careful. And as much as we might try to avoid it, as we see the consequences here of what King Ahasuerus has done, in the real world, there are real consequences for our decisions. 
Now, we've all made bad decisions. I know I have. <laughs> you know, many of them. I mean, and how easy they are to make going through life. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to go around and say more than it's the way that I feel, so I'm going to do it. Another way we might hear that today is do what's in your heart. Follow your heart. That's this. And what does scripture say about follow your heart? The heart is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? Okay. Go follow your heart. What do you think it's going to take you? Well, nowhere good. Because we're sinners. We're not told to follow our heart. We're told to follow Christ. Amen. We're told to follow his word. And so that follow your heart stuff, that's all from the world. You don't want that. No, we need to take up the words of James and slow down and ask ourselves, where are we going for wisdom? Why are we doing this or that? Why did we go and make that decision? Now, if I go and read my Bible, I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get God's word. I'm going to get the truth. I'm going to get true wisdom for all of life. And if you don't believe that, just go back and watch all of the series we did on Proverbs. We are, God is giving us a godliness, a fear of the Lord for all of life. That we may walk according to it. Or if I go to some of my godly brothers in the Lord, I know I'm going to get. You know, they'll tell me the truth. You know, they'll point me to the word of God. They'll spur me on in Christ. You know, even when it hurts, you know, even when perhaps they're like so honest, like, oh, ouch, you know, but I need that, right? You need that. You don't want just people around you saying, follow your heart all the time. You want people who will tell you the truth, even if it goes entirely against what you're doing. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's who that godly person is. I kind of felt like they were an enemy when they told me that. But they're my friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Ah, that's what's going on with their counsel. Will someone tell me the truth? <laughs> you know? And so, in our decisions that we make, we need to consider these things. And we certainly need to admit when we've made bad ones, <laughs> when we have sinned, that the sinful decision or bad decision we made, it was your decision. You did it. And so it is that there, in humbling ourselves and taking responsibility for our actions, our choices, whatever those may have looked like, whatever their outcome, you'll find that there's mercy in Christ. 
There's mercy in Christ. It might be that you're like Ahasuerus this morning. You know, you are here and you are filled with regrets for something that you have done. Well, the answer is not found in running away from God or excusing what you've done but it, or to turn from his word or to turn from the church, but it instead is to run to God with all of who you are, to humble yourself with all of who you are, to get on your knees, seek his face, cry out, pray, seek Christ, Amen. where hope and mercy is truly found. Because you won't find mercy from running from God, but only from running to Him. And how ready Christ is, isn't He, to show you and I mercy. It makes me think of the Samaritan woman. What a story there. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. There she was, going about her day, not any idea of what's about to happen. (laughs) And here she is, maybe this is you, you're there just living under this massive weight of all these sins, of all these wrong decisions that you've made. And you're coming to this well by yourself, and you know it. And you have no answer. You don't know where to go. You go get some more water. Five husbands. And now she's living with another man who is not her husband. All kinds of questions, I'm sure, going through her mind. But then there is this man at the well. Where did he come from? There's Jesus. And what does he do? He does what no one else does. And he talks to her. (laughs) The Samaritan woman. No other man is talking to her unless they want something from her. No other woman is talking to her. There's no other woman with her as they would have done as they went to the well in the morning not in the midday. And so there she is as an outcast. No one will have her. But then there's Jesus. And Jesus would have her. And she found mercy. How? Not by running from Jesus. You know all about me. You know all that I've done. Yet you're talking to me. Well, Jesus does the same thing with us. But not by running from him, but by running to him. And so you may be like King Ahasuerus this morning, or even like the Samaritan woman, but you run to Jesus who has many mercies and whose mercies are new every morning. And so there's mercy in Jesus and there's joy in Christ also. 
Now, Ahasuerus, he is a hedonist. I don't know if you've seen that. He is about pursuing pleasure for himself. He is the center of his world. I mean, he's king, and he's doing that too. So everyone around him is seeking his pleasure. Also, we see that here. But he's looking for it in all the wrong places, isn't he? It's not found in women. It's not found in sex. It's not found in false worship. It's not found in power. But it's found in Jesus Christ. And you know, you and I are doing the same thing. Our world is doing the same thing. They're looking for pleasure. They're looking for joy. True joy. And they're finding that all those things that the world is saying will give it to them are short in duration. They last for a moment and then they're gone. And so they're not found in those things, but they're found in Jesus Christ. You know, I love how the hymn puts it, which you and I may well need to do this morning. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's where you and I need to go. You need to go to him this morning. Not anyone else. Not your work. Not drugs, not your spouse, not your children. You need Jesus. Now, at this point, we like to think that what happens here next or what comes next in these verses is better, but it's not. It's not. This is not a beauty contest, as some may say. What you may think. It was anything but noble what was going on here. Instead, it was the ignoble search for a queen. The ignoble search for a queen. And so this is where we meet some other major characters in the book of Esther. Indeed, some of the major, major characters in the book of Esther, i.e. Esther, right? And so we meet... Mordecai and Esther. So what does it say of them here? So Mordecai was son of Jer, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So that means two things. One, he was related to Saul, as in King Saul, way back when. Yeah, that Saul who was chasing David around, Saul, that guy. I won't go there this morning, but you can go to 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2, and 2 Samuel 16, 5 to see that. And it says it right there. That's who those people are. And so what does that mean? What that means, he was an Israelite, he was a Jew. And Mordecai has, at least we see here, he has a, a great heart for Esther. And he takes her in as his very own daughter. See that in verses 7 and 15, repeated twice in this chapter, in these verses. And so at some point, 
Along the way, we're not told when or how, but both of Esther's parents, they died. And her father, Abihel, was Mordecai's uncle. So that means that Mordecai was her cousin, as strange as that may be. So not her dad, not her brother, but not her uncle, but her cousin. And so Esther was her Persian name, most likely, and Hadassah was her Hebrew name, which is what we see in verse 7. And so as we find out, which will be especially important in the verses ahead, we find out that she was beautiful. Now perhaps it may be surprising to us, but these were terribly dark times. These were terribly dark times in these verses. Now, we certainly should not be hearing the tune as we're going through these verses of my heart will go on from Titanic. That is not what's going on in these verses. Rather than romanticizing the story, it would be better to compare these things to the time of the judges. If you get in that kind of mindset as you read Esther, you're in the right place. Dark times. Things were all wrong. Things were twisted. They were confused. And they were off kilter. They were not the way they should be. And we see this in all variety of components of these verses here. And so we see it first in that Esther was taken. She was taken. Now, I don't mean to say that she was taken forcibly. I mean, that's not the sense here in verse 8. But other way, she was required to go. It wasn't up to her. You're going. <laughs> and so this was not an option for these women. It was a requirement. So not a beauty contest. <laughs> so that's one aspect of this. She was not going because she wanted to. Another, women were going to the king to be degraded and forgotten. So we aren't told how many women were taken from all over the kingdom. But women were taken to go and to spend one night with the king, each one, and then they would essentially be forgotten. They were not allowed to be married. They weren't virgins anymore, by the way, after that one night with the king. Not allowed to be married. They can't return to their family. They can't leave the harem of concubines and women. You're there the whole time. And they can never come before the king ever again unless he called them by name. All of this throughout the whole kingdom, so what? So the king could please himself. Do you see now? This isn't good, what he's doing here. I mean, these are dark things. He not only banished Vashti on a whim, but their one night with the king was essentially a nail in their coffins if they were not chosen. And friends, that is not romantic. 
That is wicked. That's what we're seeing. And then lastly, we see that Esther was chosen. So we know this story, but questions abound here too. Not about her being chosen specifically, but on the part of Mordecai and Esther specifically. So questions like, why were they still there? Did you ever think about that? I mean, they had an opportunity to go back with Ezra to Jerusalem. So why did they not go back with Ezra to Jerusalem? Why are they still in Persia? Question. And another question is, why didn't they flee? I mean, that's a big deal. So here's why. What about God's law? That forbids marrying a Gentile. What about marrying a Gentile, a pagan, a false, someone who definitely is not worshiping Yahweh? What about the dietary laws? What about the pagan worship that Esther is getting ready to go into, entirely immersing herself into it? Oh, and then, by the way, Esther was told by Mordecai to hide that she was a Jew. So saying anything about any of those things is simply out of the question. See that in verse 10 and 11. Now, if those questions sound strange to you, and I hope they do, they weren't strange questions, at least I don't hope they're not strange to you, because they shouldn't be strange in view of the word of God, but because they weren't strange questions for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They weren't strange questions for Daniel, all of these who were living in exile too, right? And what were they going to do and what did they do as the weight of the world began coming after them while they went to the fiery furnace? They went into the lion's den. They would rather obey God than men. So like I said, maybe you've never seen this before, but there are many questions here for Mordecai and Esther. Why didn't you, as soon as they came knocking at your door, like begin running? I'm going to follow the word of God. Well, we have no answer. Just silence. So one commentator concludes, in view of all this, the author's silence makes it virtually impossible to use Esther's behavior as a moral role model, like her behavior here. How will you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Use your body to advance God's kingdom. The ends justify the means. Esther may well have been a virtuous woman, obedient to God's law, but even if she was, the author chooses to veil her virtue 
in a morally ambiguous and complex situation. So like I said, we are in these verses not dealing with some fictional world. We're dealing with the real world. And we're dealing with a story that is gritty. And after and in seeing all these things, what perhaps is incredible, maybe above everything else in these verses, is that in it all, all of this, we see without a doubt God's providential purposes are being fulfilled. Wow. So even in the midst of all these things, and we're given hints in the text of this as well, everywhere she went, what did she find? She found favor. Verse 9, verse 15, verse 17, repeated over and over again to get your attention. Oh yeah, she is getting favor. And so verse 15, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And so we see that God, even in all these things, as complicated as all this is, is moving, he is moving everything, everything according to the counsel of his will, even today. Even in all the messiness of everything in our world, even in the messiness of your life and my life, he is moving all of these things according to the counsel of his purposes and his will for his glory. And saying that is not fatalism. As in whatever happens is determined just to happen. So Charles Spurgeon, he says to kind of this charge of fatalism, kind of a long quote, so listen, well, you will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says that God moves the will along, and there they are. If anything would go wrong, God puts it right. And if there's anything that would move awry, he puts forth his hand and alters it. It comes to the same thing, but there is a difference as to the object. There's all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Fate is a blind thing. It is the avalanche crushing the villages down below the mountain and destroying thousands of lives. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river rippling at the first like a reel down the sides of the mountain. 
flowing by minor streams till it rolls in a broad ocean of everlasting love working for the good of the human race. The doctrine of providence is not that what not that what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. And this is what we're seeing here in Esther. Yes, there is much mystery, but God is working out his plans even still. And lest we forget, we're seeing a people in exile here because of why? Judgment. They are there because of sin. Yet even so, as we see that, what does Lamentations say? A book that is filled with much grief and and judgment and tears, a book overwhelmed by the judgment of God. I mean, you go home today and you read Lamentations and you'll just be like, oh my, the judgment of God is great, which is exactly what we see in that book. But even so, even in view of all of that and even in view of all that we've seen today, we can say, Without blushing, what Jill read a moment ago, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And he says that in the midst of judgment, in the midst of Jerusalem's fall and everyone falling to pieces because it's true. So maybe you've gotten caught up in the moral ambiguity of our day and our times. Maybe you've went with the crowd. You've rebelled. You've not been a Daniel. Maybe you've turned away from God and his word. Well, from these verses, may you see that even when your sin and your shame is great, God is not through with you, and Jesus stands ready to take you in. So we have seen, indeed, this morning, a great deal of ugliness. People left disregarded, and shamed. Well, Jesus came to take what the world and sin and the devil made ugly, and he makes them beautiful. He makes you beautiful. And so he is the answer to this fallen, broken world. And rather than yielding to it this morning, yield and look to Christ today and every day. The one who came to save sinners. The one who came to show mercy. The one who came to bring you 
and to the fullness of joy through him. May you look to him this morning. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. May you do that this morning. And even in the darkest of times, may you and I trust in and hope in God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come this morning, as I certainly recognize, even as I study these verses, being somewhat overwhelmed by all of the mass of evil being done. But, Lord, we come this morning looking to you, the great and living God, that in all this, even with the sins and the failures and shame and all these things, you are working still for your glory. And our answer is not to say, flee to self, flee to my heart, flee to my desires, flee to the world, but instead it is flee to Christ. And so help us do that this morning to the one who came for us, the one who is the Savior, the one who died was buried and rose again, the one who paid the penalty in full for our sins, our shame, our guilt, he took upon himself on the cross. And so may we respond this morning to your good word and receive it and seek you in Jesus' name, amen.